This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. And this is the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre, and tries to find an answer. Caroline, this week is a, is a, is a part two, a follow-up to, uh, to last week's uh, Spooks and Scares. Yeah, there were so many haunted cemeteries to cover that it just wouldn't fit in one haunted episode. And so that's what we're bringing you, dear listeners. This is Haunted Cemeteries, Part 2. Mm-hmm. For a quick recap of Part 1, we covered Howard Street Cemetery, which is the cursed grounds of an accused witch's murder in Salem, Massachusetts. The site of possibly the most adorable ghost ever at Greyfriars Kirkyard in Edinburgh, Scotland. We Greyfri- Greyfriars Bobby. Mm-hmm, the we, little puppy. We stand a ster- We stand a terrier king. <laughs> we do. Uh, to the final resting place of New Orleans Voodoo Queen at St. Louis Number One Cemetery, the spirit of the Lizard King in Paris's Père Lachaise, and a screaming skull at Westminster Burying Ground in Baltimore, Maryland. The sk- skull. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to give everyone the stories of five more, including a bonus sixth cemetery, as a little treat. All right. And as a reminder, I am weighing in at the end of each of these with my... uh, With our patented rating system uh, that changes with each one. (laughs) Exactly right. Although, and I've been thinking about it, I I may have to recalibrate some of my scores in the previous episode, just based on um, listening back to that and and the new information I'll get here today. Who knows? Mm-hmm. You know, a, a corpse pit might not be <laughs> the end-all be-all of haunted cemeteries. Maybe, but at the end, you're going to have to write which one of all of these you think is the most haunted that we've discussed. I'm ready. Uh, Greyfriars Kirkyard still riding high <laughs> in the number one position for me. You just love the ghost puppy. And, admittedly... The corpse pit. It's true. Well, let's start off strong with the literal gateway to hell. <laughs> let's take a check on the word literal. Possibly literal. This is Stull Cemetery in Stull, Kansas. Stull itself was originally founded sometime before 1857 under the name Deer Creek and eventually changed to Stull in 1899. I've driven through Kansas. It seemed like a hellish landscape, but not in the traditional sense. <laughs> well, unlike many of the places we have and will discuss, the Wikipedia listing for Stall itself, the town, is pretty dominated by the cemetery legend, with the main description of the town stating, quote, the town has become infamous due to an apocryphal legend that claims the nearby Stall Cemetery is possessed by demonic forces. 
This legend has become a facet of American popular culture and has been referenced in numerous forms of media. When it becomes the main focus of a town's wiki, you know the story's legit. <laughs> sure, sure. It's just like the um, the Goatman of Goatman's Bridge. Mm-hmm. The popularization of the cemetery legend is mostly traced back to an article in the November 1974 issue of the University Daily Kansan, the, new the student newspaper of the University of Kansas. This is back in the day when these things had clout. I mean... If you're in Kansas and you're not near, like, Wichita, right? Mm-hmm. That might be the paper of record for that. Uh, in Ithaca, New York, there there's no uh, local news station. There's uh, just the Ithacan or whatever? There's the um, local... I mean, they have a paper in town, but there there's no TV station except the, the um, Ithaca College one. And so that's the local news of record there. Yeah, I went to school on Long Island. I worked uh, a little bit for the newspaper, mostly for the um, literary magazine. And I would have been surprised if most of the people I asked knew there was a magazine. So, you know, different strokes for different folks. <laughs> but this article, which was written by Jane Penner, publicized the main urban legend about Stull Cemetery. That the cemetery was one of the seven gates to hell. The nearby Evangelical Emanuel Church ruins were possessed by the devil, and the devil himself appeared at the location twice a year, once on Halloween and once on the spring equinox, because Satan is a well-rounded king. Now, when the devil possesses a whole building, does it get up and, like, Transformers-style <laughs> kind of get into a hum big human rock guy form and, and go fight uh, Godzilla or something? What happens? I wish. Here's a snippet of the original article. Far removed from the horrible story of the exorcist or the bizarre black masses recently discovered in Los Angeles and tucked away on a rough country road between Topeka and Lawrence is the tiny town of Stahl. Not unlike the town of Sleepy Hollow, described by Washington Irving in his famous tale, Stull is one of those towns motorists can miss by blinking. Stull and Sleepy Hollow have another thing in common. Both are haunted by legends of diabolical, supernatural happenings. Yeah, sure, but Sleepy Hollows was invented by Washington Irving. Yes. But as you can tell uh, by the relation to the exorcist and to black masses, the story of Stull Cemetery came to prominence right around the early days of America's satanic panic, and this helped the story spread and take root. I'm unsure of where Jane Penner got the legend from. Uh, some historians and locals say that the legend was simply created and spread by the University of Kansas students. It seems pretty specific to narrow it down to this one little tiny cemetery in the middle of nowhere, but... Yeah, you can just start an urban legend today like that that's that's the interesting thing to me here yeah i mean that's not, not today, maybe but... not today but yeah um it, it went viral so to speak but think of the slender man i mean that's kind of taken root as an urban legend and that was created on a forum online yeah there... where everyone knew it was fake Jane Penner's story included interviews with students who had experienced strange occurrences in Stull, including one that insisted he was grabbed by something unseen. The church itself is indeed now in ruins, having tumbled down on Good Friday, March 29th, 2002. My birthday. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> I'm born and churches come tumbling down. And Jesus dies. I was born on a Good Friday, so... You know, 
Baby, with me, they're all Good Fridays. Oh. <laughs> the cemetery, however, still lives on, perhaps giving the devil a little resting spot between his, I'm sure, many annual Halloween visits. Also, according to lore, he comes by on the spring equinox because his wife is buried there, or possibly the gravesite of his infant son. Oh, so he's a he's a sweetheart. He just, yeah, he's I sentimental. just want my kid back. <laughs> yeah. Other tidbits of the legend state that on a 1995 trip to Colorado, the Pope redirected the flight path of his private plane to avoid flying over the unholy ground of Stull. Also, the cure apparently... Which Pope would that have been? Uh, JP2. The cure apparently refused to play in Kansas because of their superstition around the legend. I haven't been able to ask Robert Smith if this is true or not, but this is one of the listed things on the page. I wonder how many other things the Pope, John Paul II, <laughs> and uh, Robert Smith have in common. <sighs> Fashion, maybe? Like, they're just very fashionable. Well, I could see Robert Smith wearing those red shoes that the next Pope liked, Benedict. True. Yeah. There are claims by tourism-friendly locals, and there are not many, uh, of raps and banging sounds, disembodied voices often reported, which are usually the voice of an old woman, uh, ghostly children playing at night in the cemetery, time shifts and discrepancies, inexplicable loss of memory, disorientation, and technological dysfunction. Stull Cemetery has also made its way deeply into pop culture probably more than the average person would know. The Winchester boys from the TV show Supernatural are canonically from Lawrence, Kansas, because the town is right next to Stull. That is confirmed by the creator. He said, I like this legend, so I made this very important part of the show's mythology take place around it. Sure, the Pope's redirecting his flight paths. This is, uh, it is known. Yeah, spoiler alert. The season five finale of Supernatural features Archangels and Lucifer in a climactic battle for power set, where else? Right in the heart of Stoll Cemetery. Wow, what, what season is that? Five? Mm-hmm. Well, so you don't have to get that deep. You don't have to go 20 seasons in or whatever <laughs> to, to get to that. Mm-hmm. I don't think... I don't think we're getting five seasons into Supernatural either, but... I'd like to at some point, but it's such an undertaking. Yeah, that's a meal. Yeah. The first season was good. I've seen that. Um, the band Urge Overkill named their 1992 album, which is the one with the iconic cover of Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon from Pulp Fiction, Stull. And the album art is a picture of a Stull gravestone with the word Stull on it. Even Miss Ariana Grande told Complex Magazine in 2013 that she took a trip to the cemetery that ended in a demonic attack. Did she describe the demonic attack? Oh, thoroughly. And I'm, I'm going to, to tell you. I felt this sick, overwhelming feeling of negativity over the whole car. And we smelled sulfur, which is the sign of a demon. And there was a fly in the car randomly, which is another sign of a demon. I was like, this is scary. Let's leave. I rolled down the window before we left and said, we apologize. We don't mean to disrupt your peace. Then I took a picture and there were three super distinct faces in the picture. They're faces of textbook demons. <laughs> so the interviewer then, of course, asks to see the picture. I deleted it. The oh. next day I tried to send the picture to my manager and it said, 
This file can't be sent. It's 666 megabytes. I'm not kidding. Oh, shut up. I used to have a folder called Demons that had pictures with all the screen caps in it, but then weird things started happening to me, so I deleted it. I was going to sleep about two weeks ago. I had just gotten off the phone, and as soon as I closed my eyes, I heard this really loud rumble right by my head. When I opened my eyes, it stopped immediately. But when I closed my eyes, it started again with whispers. Every time I closed my eyes, I started seeing these really disturbing images with, like, red shapes. Then I opened my eyes, and I got back on the phone and was like, I'm really scared, and I don't want to go to bed tonight. And then I scooched over to the left side of my bed, because that's where the best service is in the room, and there was this massive black matter. I don't know what it was. There's a bit more, but it kind of goes in that direction. <laughs> so bizarre. Yeah, so straight from Ariana Grande's mouth, folks, Stull Cemetery is bad news. Oh, it's a shame she deleted the photos with the distinct demon <laughs> picture faces. It was 666 megabytes, Sean. It was haunted. That was the dumbest thing <laughs> I've ever heard. So uh, on a st- on one, a- one of her friends farted in the car. Uh, yeah, but what about the fly, Sean? There was a fly in the car. Yeah, it's not like... It's not totally airtight. You cycle (laughs) air in from outside the car. On a scale of 1 to 10 licked Ariana Grande donuts, how haunted is Soul Cemetery? You know, the celebrity um, endorsements, and she's not the only one. You've got the Pope, you've got Robert Smith. (laughs) Um, This is the only one that is straight from their mouth. I will say. Sure, but supernatural set there. This place yes. has cultural impact that can't be denied. It's got cachet, for sure. But a legend that has started so recently is, um, I don't know, it's like Scientology. It's like, really, guys? Yeah, I mean, I guess if, if you think about it. I, I get falling for one that's thousands of years old. Right. Well, I mean, a cemetery needs time to get haunted, right? It's not going to be haunted from the jump. So, 75 years after, maybe. Maybe it's not too recent. Maybe it's just right. Yeah, maybe so. But still, the the genericness of... Genericism? I don't know. The genericness of the... Genericosity. (laughs) Of the haunting itself. There was only the one specific ghost. I don't know. The devil comes on specific days. Yeah, he does. Rate it, Sean. (laughs) I think it's a six for me. I think this one's a six. Six donuts. Um, Yeah, six donuts, but glazed in hell. Ooh. For some extra. like cinnamon? For some extra points. Sriracha donuts. It's also, I don't know that a possession by demons or like uh, a a hell mouth or something is, is a haunting necessarily. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, next, we'll hop over to North London, England to take a walk around Highgate Cemetery. But we better be careful. There are vampires afoot. Now, these are also, I'm going to have to point out, (laughs) not ghosts, but I'm interested. Haunted by something paranormal is, some of these are going to be more like that. You know, I wonder about that in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. uh, Often the cold open will be in the first couple seasons she's hunting a vampire in a cemetery mm-hmm. why are they hanging out in cemeteries so much those people don't have blood no they they, ex- they sleep in the cemetery they explain it a lot of them pop out of their coffins like she she usually goes to cemeteries waiting for people who have recently been buried to reawaken oh i see mm-hmm. 
It ain't a plot hole, kid. All right. Well, first, let's chat about the famous folks buried at Highgate. We have communist King Karl Marx, author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Douglas Adams, victim of Russian poisoning and former spy Alexander Livitenko, and most recently, singer George Michael. So Highgate is a big deal. But it also may be most well known for its spookiness. Mm. But you gotta have ghosts, ghosts, ghosts. <laughs> Looks wise, it's got like a Victorian Gothic style, so it's already pretty creepy to the eye. Post World War II, it became overgrown and run down, which contributed to the eeriness, so much so that it became a popular filming location for classic Hammer horror movies. The story most associated with Highgate of its titular vampire is a wild tale. So I'm going to try to sum it up as best as I can. Okay. It's very confusing, very strange, but here it is. The Highgate vampire. So a group of young people interested in the occult visited the cemetery in the late 60s, and they were probably influenced by the Hammer films filming there and its growing reputation as a site for vandalism. The London Evening News reported in 68... On the night of Halloween 1968, a graveyard desecration by persons unknown occurred at Tottenham Park Cemetery in London. These persons arranged flowers taken from graves in circular patterns with arrows of blooms pointing to a new grave which was uncovered. A coffin was open and the body inside disturbed. But their most macabre act was driving an iron stake in the form of a cross through the lid into the breast of a corpse. The perpetrators were never found. Oh, my God. They, well, they were doing the world a service. They had to take, <laughs> take out that vampire. Apparently. Uh, then, in a letter to the Hampstead and Highgate Express in February 1970, magician David Ferrant wrote that when passing the cemetery on December 24th, 1969, he had glimpsed a gray figure, which he considered to be supernatural, and asked if others had seen something similar in the area. Several people replied, saying that they'd seen a variety of strange beings and spirits in the cemetery and the adjoining Swain's Lane. Among these phantoms were a tall man in a hat, a cyclist, a woman in white, a figure wading into a pond, and experiences of disembodied bells ringing and voices calling out. Now, this is the specif specificity that I want. Um, and you've got all the, all the classics. They're playing the hits. Guy in the hat, woman in, in white. Hat, woman in white. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. Another response came from fellow magician Sean Manchester, who claimed the gray figure was actually a vampire. The media loved this, and they followed up with more stories about how this vampire was the king of the vampires and practiced black magic. This is in real newspapers. But how did this person claim to know this? He's a magician. He knows, he knows all that stuff. So he's just a liar? <laughs> I don't know. But Ferrand and Manchester began a public rivalry. Was he a magician like William J. Hall is a magician? Or was he a magician like Rasputin was a magician? magician. I wasn't really sure. It seemed, it seemed like there was kind of overlap, like magician and occult practitioner. Yeah, like, like Alan Moore, like he's... Uh... Yes, he's, he's a man of all worlds. Um, so they began a public rivalry because they're both magicians who happen to be experts in the cemetery vampire. Um, so apparently, you know, one is too many. Uh, so they each claimed in the news that he was the only one who could banish the vampire and the other guy was a fake. Oh, is there going to be a, <laughs> there's a vamp war. Yeah. 
uh, Manchester declared he would hold an exorcism on Friday the 13th, March 1970. You got it. This is a showman. Mm-hmm. And in preparation, ITV, you know, TV station, interviewed Manchester, Ferrant, and others who claimed to have seen supernatural figures in the cemetery and broadcast them on a special that was shown on ITV in the early evening of the 13th. And... Um, were there vampires in this in the special? No. Well, these are just the interviews. This is like the uh, the pregame to the exorcism. Did people tune into that? Yes. I wasn't able to find specifically just this video clip, but we'll follow up with Manchester in a minute. So within two hours of the special airing, a mob of hunters from all over London and beyond swarmed over gates and walls into Highgate to come and see what was going on. Police had to come in to control the crowd. It was an absolute mess. A few months later, in August 1970, the charred and headless remains of a woman's body were found not far from the main catacomb, which was said to be the vampire's lair. By, by, by the wizard. Wizards. <laughs> Ferent was found by police in the churchyard beside Highgate Cemetery one night later that month, carrying a crucifix and a wooden stake and was arrested because someone had just found a dead body in this place and he's lurking around at night. Right. And the play and he's carrying a stake in a cemetery that has a history of people breaking open coffins and staking corpses. Mm -hmm. He ended up being dismissed as a subject. He ended up being dismissed as a suspect. But a few days after the body was discovered, Manchester returned to Highgate Cemetery <laughs> and claims that this time he and his assistants forced open the doors of a family vault, lifted the lid off of one coffin, and he was about to drive the stake through the body it contained when a friend persuaded him not to. He didn't, but he did leave garlic and incense in the vault before he left. <laughs> You'll curse us no more, evildoer! <laughs> the rivalry between Ferent and Manchester didn't end there, though. Rumors spread that they would meet in a magician's duel on Parliament oh, Hill. Oh, no, you're fucking kidding <laughs> me. Nope. Friday the 13th, April 1973. Neither of these men ever got laid. And they also never did their magician's duel. Um, Ferrant was arrested again in 1974 for damaging memorials and interfering with the dead remains in Highgate Cemetery, and the animosity between the two continued straight through to Ferrant's death in 2019. Now, I did find one of my favorite people interviewing Sean Manchester himself about the end of the Highgate vampire drama on True Horror with Anthony Head. I'm Anthony Head. For the past few years... I've had a fantastic time playing the part of Giles in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Now you might think that I would know all there is to know about the supernatural. Wouldn't we? <laughs> well, I'm no expert, I'm just an actor. Giles does. However, I have become intrigued about the root, the origins of these supernatural tales. Very dramatic. Okay, so then we're... We're going to go and talk to Sean Manchester. We dragged the contents of the casket out up to the rear of the garden and cremated all therein. And that was indeed the last of the primary source of the vampire contagion at Highgate Cemetery at the beginning of 1974. 
That sounds like a, an admission of grave robbing and property destruction. Yeah, it's probably out of the uh, Statue of Limitations by now. Um, but yeah, and this is from Sean Manchester's personal YouTube page, uh, this clip. So he's kind of, it's like a little real, almost. This is his crowning achievement of his career, is that Giles talked to him that time, mm -hmm. yeah, about the time that he dispatched the vampire. Mm-hmm. Um, What's the look on Giles's face as he's describing uh, digging up these corpses and burning them? Well, he it's more of like a narration type of thing. Um, oh, they only got Giles for a day, huh? <laughs> no, they did several episodes. This was the vampire episode. They did ghosts, um, some other ones. But yeah, he seems into it. Much like Stull's Cemetery, the legend of the Highgate vampire has inspired a number of pop culture figures, including its own Hammer horror film, Dracula A.D. 1972. And the legend even found its way into the Buffy the Vampire Slayer Season 9 comics, where the Highgate vampire himself appeared as a villain. Bringing things full circle back to Anthony Stewart Head, the vamp in the comics was revealed to have nearly killed his character, Rupert Giles, back in 1972, and in 2010 becomes a minion of the Buffy character Drusilla when he reappears. You just can't keep a good vampire down. Wow, that must have been uh, very frightening for old Ripper. <laughs> yeah. So on a scale of one to ten desecrated graves, how haunted is Highgate Cemetery? This is wonderful. Um, even though what you mostly have, it seems that what you mostly have is is less ghosts and more like flabby old crazy guys. <laughs> but yelling there, at there each are other. ghosts. It's just like you know what? That's not as interesting as this crazy story. Yeah, the yeah, and they they do bump it up for me. Uh, again, there's no actual ghost activity that's terrifying me there or winning over my heart like there was in the um, in the Kirkyard, but. <laughs> I'm going to give him a seven. I'm going to give him a seven because, um, I don't know what, whatever was in that cemetery, whether it was a ghost, a vampire or nothing at all. It drove at least those two men completely mad. Yep. <laughs> Let's travel on back to America, to the land of mint juleps and Spanish moss, Savannah, Georgia. Oh, I do declare. Mm -hmm. Now, this is one cemetery I've been to. It is absolutely gorgeous. I highly recommend uh, going if you're in Savannah. It's a beautiful, kind of peaceful place. It's incredibly quiet. <coughs> it's And kind of like a bastion of tranquility in the bustling city of Savannah. I mean, as bustling as Georgia gets, anyway. The land was first purchased in 1762 by British loyalist John Mulrine. Now, when the Revolutionary War ended, those loyal to the British crown uh, weren't doing great, <laughs> and they began to face persecution. So Mulrine's land was seized by local authorities and auctioned off to the public. Rough. Yeah, but that's what happens. Sucks to suck, John. Eventually, in 1907, it was officially acquired by the city of Savannah, which declared the grounds a public cemetery. The cemetery, interestingly, really emerged on the national scene in 1994, which is when it figured into a best-selling true crime book by John Barrent, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Oh. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great book. Really interesting low-key film was made uh, based on it, directed by Clint Eastwood and starring John Cusack and Kevin Spacey. That's where I know the name from. Mm-hmm. The cover of the book itself features uh, the statue on the cover inside of the cemetery of a young girl holding two bowls, which is also called the Statue of Little Wendy. You might also recognize it from being in my parents' backyard. <laughs> they bought like a small version of it while we were down there. This, this statue was once located at the Trosdale family plot, but because of the book, it became so famous that it was donated to the Telfair Museum of Art to preserve her. They didn't want anyone vandalizing it or knocking it down. Was it still at the cemetery when you went there with your family? Gosh, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I don't know. Because I was also reading the book at the time, so like that image of it is so stuck in my head that I don't even know if that was the case or not. But the cemetery has what, like a gift shop that sells little little versions of the, or it was probably in a, a store in the town. It was in, in a, a store in the town. It was, um, it's a couple of feet high, but the real one's bigger. <laughs> That's what she said. Legend says that the statue is haunted by the ghost of Lorraine Greenman, the little girl who was the model for it for artist Sylvia Shaw Judson. Hmm. Now, I don't think my parents' version of it was haunted, but you never know. You do say all the time that your house was haunted. It was, but that's another story for another day. It's another statue that has the most stories of hauntings, though. Little Gracie Watson was six years old when she died of pneumonia, and her grieving family had her memorialized in stone by artist John Waltz for her grave. Some who have stood close to her gravesite have reported seeing the spirit of the beautiful little girl wearing a white dress and vanishing without a trace if they attempted to get closer. Mm. Little Gracie has also been seen in Johnson Square, where her father owned a hotel. Late at night, those happening to sit on one of the benches in the square may spot Gracie gliding through silently as she plays alone. Many visit Gracie's grave to leave presents for the ghost child, and some say her statue cries tears of blood if you try to take her toys away. So don't do that. Like toys people have left at the grave? Yeah, like offerings, basically. This is the first blood-crying statue we've had. Mm Mm-hmm. But little Gracie's statue isn't the only one that might be haunted at Bonaventure. Those on tours have given accounts of different statues grimacing or smiling at them as they passed by. And there have also been plenty of reports of inexplicable sounds, like a baby crying near an infant's grave, giggling disembodied children, and even the sounds of a pack of dogs snarling and barking angrily, but nowhere to be seen. Now, personally, I absolutely believe something could be at play at Bonaventure. Um... While it's beautiful and peaceful and, you know, there's nothing negative uh, in the air, so to speak, the whole place really feels heavy with history. But that's also beautiful in its own way. So, Sean, on a scale of one to ten statues crying blood, how haunted is Bonaventure Cemetery? Well, see, this is my problem. I want to, with stat- when you've got statues crying blood, when you've got statues making faces at people and uh, uh, lots of noises, I love the consistency of this legend in this mm-hmm. park. I love, um, I love the specificity of the manifestations here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm tempted to give this one an eight, but what I have to do is bump Greyfriars Kirkyard up to a nine. <laughs> I think you're rigging this thing in uh, favor of Greyfriars. 
Well, that had like the spirit of the torturer. Yeah, that's true. And the corpse pit. And the corpse pit and Greyfriars Bobby. And, and we've seen, we've heard of no other ghost dogs. Um, in, in most of these other cemeteries, there's not really as many named ghosts. Frequency of named ghosts, I guess I'm saying, is, is what I'm very big on. Yeah, for sure. So Greyfriars says that in spades. Um, so we have eight statues crying blood here, but Greyfriars is bumped up to a nine. Yeah, and that was nine a, ghost puppies. Nine ghost puppies for Greyfriars <laughs> Bobby. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll tackle the rest of our ghoulish graveyards after the break. <laughs> Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. You're here, which means you love podcasts, but are you looking for another kind of entertainment on the go? Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to memoirs, news, business, and more. By signing up for a free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash scary, you'll receive access to thousands of titles with one credit toward any audiobook and two Audible originals, free during your trial and then with subscription each month after. Personally, my favorite Audible title is also my favorite book, It by Stephen King. I went into this audiobook ready to judge because I've loved this novel since I was a kid. But between the stellar production value and the truly breathtaking narration performance by actor Steven Weber, I was 100% all in. If you like this podcast and have a strong stomach, I think you will be too. Not into audiobooks? No problem. With podcasts, theatrical performances, guided meditations, and more, Audible offers something for everyone. So what are you waiting for? Get started now. And hey, you'll be helping support the podcast. Visit our link at www.audibletrial.com slash scary for a free trial. That's www.audibletrial.com slash A-I-N-T-I-T-S-C-A-R-Y. Audible. Listen more. Welcome back. When last we left you, we had just run through three more terrifying haunted cemeteries. We got the devil, we got a vampire, we've got statues crying blood. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a pretty, a, a pretty wonderful tour of the U.S. and abroad so far. Caroline, what do you got for us next? Well, we're going to go overseas one last time to, and I'm probably saying this wrong, Oystens 
in Christchurch, Barbados, and the Chase Vault at Christchurch Paris Church Cemetery. This story is kind of unique because it involves one singular location at the cemetery. Very specific, which I know you like, Sean. But it's so famous and so weird that it deserves discussion all its own. The Chase Vault legend has been around since at least its first published version in 1833 in the book Transatlantic Sketches by General James Edward Alexander. I assume this was kind of like an autobiography sort of thing. Yeah, or just a um, the then equivalent of a travel book. Mm-hmm. Alexander wrote that a Mrs. Goddard was buried in the vault in a wooden casket in 1807. Now, not buried, but, you know, kind of left there, I guess. And this was followed by uh, two-year-old Anna Maria Chase in 1808 and 12-year-old Dorcas Chase in 1812. Dorcas? Mm-hmm. D-O-R-C-A-S. There's also a Dorcas in the Salem Witch Trials. Um, that's how I know the name. Strange name, but you know. I'm putting it on the list. Go ahead. Dorcas McCabe. I mean, that uh, any child of ours is probably going to be a Dorcas for sure. So. Yeah, so let's call a spade a spade. <laughs> Now, unfortunately for Dorcas, she tragically starved herself to death, from what I read, at 12 years old. At 12 years old? Yeah. Look, I know Eddie Cullen uh, drank his chemistry set at at age nine. Um, Charles Cullen. Eddie Cullen is Edward Cullen. (laughs) Eddie Cullen is a vampire. Charlie Cullen. Charles Cullen is a murderer. Is a murderer. Uh, He tried to drink his uh, chemistry set when he was nine years old to end his life. You need a lot more commitment to starve yourself yourself to death. Yeah. And kids love food. Yeah. Um, The vault was opened again later in 1812 for the burial of Thomas Chase, which was the father of Anna Maria and Dorcas. Now... The girls, unlike Mrs. Goddard, were buried in lead-lined, very, very heavy coffins. But when it was opened to bury their father in the same kind of coffin... What are they? Superman? Why why the lead coffin? I have no idea. I don't know if it was like a preservation thing. But the caskets of the girls were said to be found in a confused state, having been apparently tossed from their places. So Tom, they were fixed. Thomas was put in. I think his coffin was upwards of 250 pounds at least. When the vault was opened yet again soon after for the burial of another child, the four coffins inside, um, three of which were made of lead and very heavy, were much disturbed. And that similar disturbances to the coffins inside were found when opening the vault later for the burial of 11-year-old Charles Brewster Ames in 1816. So both times it was like, oh, these were are not where we left them. Every time they would open it to put in another body, which was happening fairly often, um, the coffins were all moved around. Now, keep in mind the door to this vault was a massive marble stone that required six or seven men to just move aside for each burial, like all together. So if anyone was trying to get into the vault to just throw things around... They're doing it in some sort of coordinated group. Nothing was stolen. Um, Things were just thrown around. Thrown around? Like the coffins were upside down and stuff? Or were they just like um, shifted and moved around? All all of the above. Some were tossed to the, like, against the wall. They're leaning on each other, all Mm -hmm. this stuff. The only coffin that was like 
damaged was the wooden one, but it didn't seem like the other ones were pried open or anything like that. At this point, before resealing the tomb, a layer of sand was placed on the floor to detect any footprints should the culprits return again. Old school detective work. The last time the vault was opened was in 1819, and the governor of Barbados, Lord Combermere, was present. The coffins were found at this point again, confusingly thrown around the vault, some with their heads down and others up. Well, so, you know, like. Sure. And, and what of the sand? No footprints or signs of water flooding the vault were detected. So some people thought that maybe water was getting in, floating the stuff around, and then getting out right. and leaving them in different places. There would probably have to be a lot to lift the coffins, just in terms of density. Right. Um, but there was no signs of there having been water inside. The governor was like, I'm sick of this shit. <laughs> this is weird. So he ordered the bodies reinterred in separate burial plots with the vault now sealed and empty. And I will emphasize that no other vaults at the Christchurch Cemetery ever had anything like this issue. Because wow. you can kind of describe, like, explain it away by being water if a bunch of them did this or, you know, it's just very strange that it was one vault. Do you know, are the other ones similarly, I'm putting air quotes around this i guess but easy to get into like that's not locked it's just if you have enough people you can move the tomb aside. i'm not sure but i assume there are other ones like that this strange story captured the minds of victorian society with sherlock holmes author arthur conan doyle even speculating about the case wondering if animal magnetism could be involved yeah well arthur conan doyle loved those uh fairy photos that from those little girls mm-hmm should we do a mini-sode on that, or do people already know that story? Uh, listeners, get at us. <laughs> so it's hard to explain the theory of animal magnetism quickly, but basically it's a theory of some sort of invisible natural force that is present in all living things, like the force in Star Wars. Like, and you can use it for telekinesis, like the I force? I guess, Yeah. Folklorist Benjamin Radford compares it to other moving coffin stories around the world and even believes Freemason allegory has been a factor in this case due to a Masonic tale of a secret vault in which could be found ancient mysteries, symbolic of death, where alone divine truth is to be found. Meaning some, he thinks some jackasses have been breaking into this thing hoping to open to do some kind of a ritual? Apparently a couple of the guys on the scene of the burials, multiple of the burials were Freemasons, which isn't crazy for this time uh, period, but he thought that maybe they interpreted this that way. I don't know. It's folklorist stuff. They're just, they're looking for like the real metaphors here. Right. Um, so could there have been a poltergeist in the vault or multiple ones? Could it have been a group of people trying to mess around with anyone who came to bury someone for some reason? witchcraft seismic activity focused solely on this one vault uh it remains a mystery sith lords sith lords so on a scale of one to ten lead-lined coffins how haunted is the chase vault i like this one a lot i like it a lot no, no one's crying blood no um 
one girl did starve herself to death. And that was before this all happened. That's true. You can't hold that uh, in the cemetery's favor <laughs> or against it for that matter. Hmm. Um, this is a seven and a half for me. Seven and a half. Yeah, it's so limited to the one vault in this one story, but it's a fascinating uh, story. Yeah, it's hard to believe that it was something like flooding or mini earthquakes or whatever if this never happened anywhere else. What was the scale there? What were, were we rating that in? One to ten lead-lined coffins. Great, yeah. So it was seven and a half lead-lined coffins. Again, <laughs> we have no idea what the exchange rate is with ghost puppies from that. So, so yeah. uh, this scale means nothing. But for, <laughs> but for what it is, there it is. So last, we return to America for a one-two punch in the Windy City, Chicago, Illinois. Now, originally, I didn't want to include cemeteries from the same state uh, and certainly not the same country, certainly not the same city. But the stories behind both of these are so intriguing and so prevalent in haunted cemetery lore. I didn't want to choose between them. I mean, they really often show up both on like the same top 10 lists. Don't kill your darlings. Give me both. Exactly. So we'll begin at Bachelor's Grove at the unincorporated Bremen Township. The cemetery has become known for its alleged ghost sightings. The site first saw uh, its... Can, no can I just say, and I don't know if this factors into any of the ghost sightings, Bachelor's Grove does sound like somewhere men men go <laughs> to have anonymous sex. Mm, or die. Or die during anonymous sex? <laughs> uh, it saw its first known burials around 1836 and contains 200 grave plots, but some of these have never been sold or used. The site is also often reported as a dumping ground for victims of the Al Capone and Chicago mobs in the 20s and 30s. Is that where they got the idea to use it as a cemetery? And they're like, hey. <laughs> no, this was after. Um, no evidence has come forward to prove this, but there is an isolated lagoon near the back of the cemetery, which seems like the perfect place to dump a snitch or two. It's also pretty... I'm going to say polite of Al Capone to at least dump these bodies uh, on hallowed ground. <laughs> that is true. There's a whole list of the reported phenomena at Bachelor's Grove. They start with your typical floating orbs of light and also extend to reported collisions with a phantom vehicle. Well, what kind of car? What are we talking about? Just said phantom vehicle. <laughs> oh, that's no fun. <laughs> Sorry. Um... One of the most famous ghost photos of all time was taken at Bachelor's Grove. It's called the White Lady or the Madonna of Bachelor's Grove. The photo was taken at the cemetery in 1991 during an investigation by the Ghost Research Society using infrared film. The group saw no person visible at the time, but the photo clearly shows a human figure, which looks like a woman to my eyes, sitting on the checkered monument located near the south entrance. Well, I, I trust the GRS, obviously. I think that goes without saying. Now I just want to show you. That looks very solid. That looks like, yeah, just a woman sitting in a in a park. Yeah, now her the front of her face and also her feet are kind of translucent here. Um, it's a very interesting picture. Uh, and this woman is rumored to be the spirit of a woman who was buried next to her child and has apparently also been seen wandering the cemetery during the full moon, holding the body of a baby in her arms. I love how rumors get started about whose ghost she is. It's like, <laughs> how do you, how do you know? <laughs> yeah. Did you ask? 
The Madonna of Bachelor's Grove isn't the only spirit. How about a ghost house? More than once, groups of people have come across a phantom farmhouse while hiking the gravel road around the cemetery late at night. Time slip? Maybe. The house appears as a picturesque white farmhouse in perfect modern condition and then disappears completely before your eyes. In 1984, a rash of people reported seeing the ghostly figure of what appeared to be a monk walking slowly across the cemetery toward the moon. Disembodied arguing voices have been heard coming from the overgrown lagoon area. Capone? Of of course, sure. And other spirits include a two-headed ghost, a black dog seen mostly in the 90s, and a farmer and his plow horse. Both had died in an accident. These are, this is specificity of spirits, Carrie. S of S. This is what I need. Mm-hmm. So on a scale of one to ten snitches drowned in a lagoon, how haunted is Bachelor's Grove? This one gets a hard eight from me. Ooh, a hard eight. Hard eight. Don't give me that look. I'm just asking why. Um, it's because we know, we know about the body dumps that probably were there. I think that uh, is going to add some negative energy to a place, uh, some fear factor. It is kind of an overgrown and abandoned cemetery now, too, so it's looking spooky. And we have uh, a photograph of supposedly a full-body apparition of a ghost. That's the only, like, hard evidence, and I'm using air quotes again, <laughs> that you've shown me, uh, uh, you know, for any of these. So that gets at some points. Um, and there were... Well, no- there was Jim Morrison's ghost, don't forget. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Last week. I was not impressed by that (laughs) double exposure picture of Jim Morrison. Okay. Um, But again, this has, uh, you know, so many specific uh, uh, people and and sounds that are heard. Um, So eight snitches. Yeah, this is eight snitches for me. All right. And none of them, none of them are getting stitches (laughs) because they're already dead. Exactly. We'll visit our last cemetery of the series, Resurrection Cemetery in Justice, Illinois. Oh, well, so this is like a pet cemetery situation? (laughs) No, uh, but the spirit at this cemetery is so famous, she has her own Wikipedia page. So let's give it up for Resurrection Mary. Oh, oh! The story of Resurrection Mary is a classic vanishing hitchhiker tale and usually goes something like this. Mary, a young woman, possibly Polish, living in the Chicago area in the 1930s, had spent the evening dancing with her date at the O. Henry Ballroom. O.H. Henry. At some point, they got into an argument and Mary stormed out of the venue. She's like, I'm going home by myself. She started walking up Archer Avenue, not getting very far before she was struck and killed, struck by a hit and run driver who fled the scene, leaving Mary to die. Bastard. Yeah. Her grief-stricken parents found her body and buried her in Resurrection Cemetery, wearing a beautiful white dancing dress and matching dancing shoes. The hit-and-run driver was never found. The Mary of legend is widely believed to be either Mary Bragovi, a young woman who died in a car accident, not a hit-and-run, in 1934 and buried at Resurrection, or... Anna Maria Norcus, who died in 1927 in an automobile accident while on her way home from the O. Henry Ballroom. Or kind of maybe uh, maybe the two stories got merged over the, over the years? Possibly, yeah. Interestingly, the stories about the spirit of Mary began not long after her reported death. 
Jerry Palace reported in 1939, he met a person who he came to believe was Resurrection Mary. This was at the Liberty Grove and Hall at 47th and Mozart. They danced, they even kissed, and she asked him to drive her home along Archer Avenue. Wait, the ghost did? He just met a girl at the dance hall, right? Well, she exited the car while saying, I must leave you now. You cannot follow me. And she disappeared in front of Resurrection Cemetery right before his eyes. <gasps> mm-hmm. Another story came in 1979 and 80 from Chicago Tribune columnist Bill Geist. He reported about Ralph, a taxi driver, um, who had dropped off a fare in the far southwest suburbs on the cold evening before the historic blizzard of 1979. He spotted a girl with no coat wearing a white dancing dress walking beside the road. Nope. Being a nice guy, he offered her a ride only to have her disappear through the cab door, then run to an outbuilding across from Resurrection Cemetery's main gate. Why? What was the, the ghost live there? Yeah, she, she, she doesn't need. She uh, lives there forever. She doesn't need shelter in the well, field house. I don't know. Also in the 70s, Bob Main, night manager of Harlow's Dance Club, claimed to see the ghost of Mary twice in one month. Quote, this was the Glitter Rock era, and we saw a lot of strange people. But one Friday night, then two weeks later on a Saturday night, this woman came in. She was 24 to 30 years old, 5 foot 8 or 9, slender, with yellow blonde hair to her shoulders that she wore in these big spoolie curls coming down from a high forehead. She was really pale, like she had powdered her face and her body. She had on this old dress that was yellowed, like a wedding dress left in the sun. She sat right next to the dance floor and wouldn't talk to anyone. She also danced all by herself in this pirouette type of dance. So I assume she's like spinning around. People Like, like a music box ballerina. <laughs> yeah. People were saying, who is this bizarre chick? <laughs> When Maine and others tried to talk to her, the woman would only shake her head and, quote, seem to look through you. She had this teardrop on her cheek that just stayed there. It looked like nail polish. Oh, that means she killed someone for the gang, doesn't it? <laughs> well, it was clear. Uh, but when you got right up to her, it looked like her eye was bleeding. But the strangest thing was, even though we carded everyone who came in here, I worked the door and there were waitresses and bartenders and people there. Nobody, either night, ever saw her come in and never saw her leave. Bob Main only connected the odd woman with the story of Resurrection Mary when he saw the legend printed in the paper years later. Wow. Really? So he says. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Rich Przinsky was the manager of Chet's Melody Lounge, located right across the street from the cemetery's main gates in the 70s. There were a few guys here in the bar, and we noticed a cab outside with its engine running. Finally, the driver came into the bar and said, okay, where's the blonde? We said, a blonde woman never came in here. Przinsky and the others searched the bar and its ladies' room. The woman, who had asked the cab driver to be dropped at Chet's, simply wasn't there. Hmm. A story dating to 1976. Wait, the cab driver came in and said, where'd the, where'd the girl go? Mm-hmm. Oh, was she She just... walked in the place and she disappeared, but they had never seen her walk in and she wasn't there. I don't think the cabbie really saw her walk in. I think she skipped out on the fair. Oh, I just got to run and get my boyfriend's in there. I got to run and get the but fair. But she wasn't in there. Yeah, she never went in there. <laughs> she just left. <laughs> he said he saw her walk in. Yeah, I'm sure she went next door. <sighs> 
A story dating to 1976 tells of a police sergeant being called to the Archer Avenue gates of the cemetery on a report that someone was locked inside. He checked the area and was stunned to see that two bars in the massive metal gate were pulled apart and blackened with handprints scorched into the metal as if someone had forced their way out. And these uh, still remain today. That's so like the Balrog from yeah. <laughs> Lord of the Rings uh, pried open these bars. Mm -hmm. That doesn't seem like a Resurrection Mary. That's not her MO. I don't know. Flaming super strength. Some say that this defect was simply caused by a truck backing into the gate. But who knows? That does make more sense. <laughs> there was also the story of a police officer that called an ambulance to rescue a bloodied woman in a white dress he thought he hit and knocked into a vacant area near the entrance gate. But when paramedics arrived, the woman couldn't be found. There was only a white sheep there's there's only a dead sheep somebody had hit in the road <laughs> oh. um no that's uh that's interesting i feel like i've heard that story before for sure the vanishing hitchhiker i mean there's a, there's a book called that it's one of the most popular urgent urban legends versions of urban legends in america and around the world it's like the guy with the hook for his hand you know harassing the kids at lover's lane it's a cliche it's an archetype but do you think resurrection mary was the first one i don't know perhaps i mean this started pretty early in modern urban legend 1930s yeah what the, the movie Susie q is set in the 50s right mm -hmm. isn't that about a ghost hitchhiker um kinda kinda <laughs> kinda she wasn't hitchhiking as much as just harassing this kid to try and find the, the money for her grandfather. Um, it's very, very upsetting film to, to always be on Disney Channel, but I loved the hell out of it. <clears throat> the story of Resurrection Mary has inspired a variety of pop culture, including the song Bringing Mary Home by the Country Gentleman, two episodes of Unsolved Mysteries, and four different films from the years 2002 to 2007, all titled Resurrection Mary. Oh, they just, they couldn't find, uh, couldn't. It was, it's a, it's a great title. So they all took that title. It's 2002, 2005, 2006, 2007. All different films, all named Resurrection Mary. I'm shocked one's not called The Dancer or so like nothing. No, Lady no, other, White. no nope. other title. Nope. Susie Q. <laughs> Mary B. Um, so let's, let's listen to a couple of little clips from one of the trailers. Oh. Of Resurrection Mary, this is the 2007 film. Practically run her over with my car, and then I should ask if she wants to make out with me. See, that's the thing, you don't ask. I mean, you just make out with her. I just had to include that part. Um, I mean, rules to live by, certainly. Mm, absolutely not. So you almost did her. Who you think was her, Long Archer? Yeah, yeah, go figure. I'd give or do anything to spend one more night with her. Doesn't matter if she's a ghost or not. That sounds very intense, and the mm -hmm. the caliber of acting on display. Uh, I'm not I'm not going to to down talk uh, someone's clearly independent film because uh, I'm an independent filmmaker myself, and just to just to do a feature film um, and and get it out there 
takes a lot of work and a lot of courage. So good for you, Sean Michael Byer, who probably directed this. I just thought he should have changed the title. <laughs> now, there's also a version of this film called The Legend of Resurrection Mary. And I can't tell if it's a sequel or a re-edit of the same movie. <laughs> um, but it's from 2021 on IMDb. So it seems clear that Resurrection Mary has still got her claws in pop culture even today. Wow. Now, is there anything else at Resurrection Cemetery? Like of paranormal note or is it just resurrection mary's home i really concentrated on this one for it um but perhaps yeah so on a scale of one to ten phantom hitchhikers how haunted is resurrection cemetery it's such a high profile haunting but it's really just the one haunting so i i, I have to give it a six i think hmm. i can't go i can't go high on that one. you're not about uh, quality over quantity i guess i am but she's also not that scary hmm I'm not, I'm not terrified. I mean, you're, you're her type, you know, a strapping young man. Thank you. <laughs> Driving down the road. You have a license. So. Oh, that's me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm from the open road. <laughs> well, what do you think was the most haunted cemetery of all 11 that we discussed the last couple of weeks? Caroline, you know what I'm going to say. Greyfriars Kirkyard in Edinburgh, Scotland. That's right. And it makes me want to go to Edinburgh so badly to visit that... Um... Ghost puppy? Yeah, in the corpse pit. Okay. Well, you can go to the corpse pit. I'll go to the ghost puppy. Um, no, just just fascinating. That, those were some really scary stories. That was like, oh, this ghost... Pretty crazy. ...murdered thousands while he was alive. <laughs> it's like, oh, that catches your, catches your attention. That'll put some hair on your chest. Mm-hmm. Certainly did to you. Yeah. Yeah, I was hairless before we started this episode, which... Um, <laughs> Completely bald. It was actually kind of weird. Mm -hmm. and, and now, honestly, I need a haircut. I did have several people tell me at work today that I need a haircut. It's because of all the hair you got from Greyfriars Kirkyard. They weren't people I work with. They were strangers. Oh. Well, there you have it, folks. Greyfriars Kirkyard... Stamp of approval from Ain't It Scary Podcast, the most haunted cemetery in the world. You're just f going with me on that? Yeah, why not? Okay, thank you. All right, <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to take this as a as a, an endorsement of my kind of ghost expertise that I'm uh, I'm <laughs> setting the tone here. I love a ghost puppy. What can I say? Yeah, that's fair. We stand a terrier king. <laughs> I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download. American Vigilante, now.
Connecticut's first ever paranormal convention is coming this summer. Paracon! Paracon will be held Saturday and Sunday, July 24th and 25th, 2021, at the Haunted Ansonia Armory in Ansonia, Connecticut. And guess who's going to be there? This haunted weekend will feature special guests, paranormal investigations, seminars, panels, vendors, exhibits, and much, much more. Paracon is presented by Nick Grossman, head of Ghost Storm Investigations and collector of some of the rarest paranormal artifacts in the world, and Charles Rosenay, founder of Stratford's Fright Haven and director of Tours of Terror, ghost tours to Transylvania, Prague, England, and all over haunted Connecticut. Yeah, we've been to Fright Haven. Uh, when we went, he had a one. One of the rooms was uh, all clown themed. It was a bunch of scary clown stuff. But you wore three D glasses. It was pretty cool. That was the Saint Valentine's Day massacre, wasn't it? Uh, yes, they do seasonal offerings, not just Halloween. That was the Saint Valentine's Day massacre. It was a beautiful date. Our first Valentine's Day. So who will be at Paracon? Guests include paranormal investigator Barry Pirro. Author Bill Hall, who you may remember wrote The World's Most Haunted House, subject of episodes 17 and 18 of the podcast. Yep, go check those out. Some of our very best work, mm -hmm. I think. And us. Yeah, we'll be there too, in person to chat all things scary. So come on down and meet us. Oh, I guess I spoiled your surprise there. But yes, we will have a booth at Paracon, and we're so damn excited that we'll be there. Yeah. Do you like to shop? Well, they'll have their own bizarre bazaar. Haunt artists, horror authors, cryptozoologists, artisans, occult sellers, and much more will be there. So bring some bones, the money kind, and a good pair of walking shoes. You can bring the other kind of bones, too, if you, if you want. Yeah, maybe you can sell them. Who knows? We hope to see you there. Get your tickets now for only $9.99 per day through May 1st at www.paraconn.org. Is that a special deal for us or is that just how cheap tickets are? That's just how cheap tickets are until May 1st. Then it goes up like five bucks. Oh, you guys. Still, still a deal. This is a bargain at any price. <laughs> Paracon, Connecticut's first paranormal convention. In a new segment we'll be calling Weird Science, we have the story of the first part-human, part-monkey embryo. Weird science! <laughs> We're definitely not going to be able to play that. No. So. But I could probably sing it. <laughs> Especially like that. It's nothing like the song. <laughs> Just do your little news. Do your little news. The Sun reports the first part human, part monkey embryo has been created by scientists at California's Salk Institute. Why? Despite ethical concerns. Is this real? Yes. Researchers have grown human stem cells in monkey embryos to try and better understand how the cells communicate, with the embryos being scientifically classified as monkey-human chimeras. The scientists hope that this development could eventually be used to create organs for transplants and teach us more about human growth and, and disease ugh, human growth and disease progression. Oh, so does that mean where I think they're going to grow transplant hearts like in a jar, 
they're gonna have to grow little little heart monkeys. I don't know. Is I the jar not. is the jar a monkey? Ugh, I don't know. Professor Juan Carlos Ispuza Belmonte, head researcher and creator of the first human pig hybrid in 2017. The pig man <laughs> stated, quote, these chimeric approaches could really could be really very useful for advancing biomedical research, not just at the very earliest stage of life, but also the latest stage of life. The embryos were monitored for about 20 days and apparently have been destroyed. There is a concern that this will open Pandora's box to human non-human chimeras, according to Professor Julian Savulescu at the Oxford Uhiro Center for Practical Ethics. This is one place I kind of... Agree? I don't know. The slippery slope argument feels a little more compelling to me in this case for some reason. Yep. He went on to say, quote, These embryos were destroyed at 20 days of development, but it is only a matter of time before human non-human chimeras are successfully developed, perhaps as a source of organs for humans. We'll certainly keep you updated on any more human-animal hybrid creatures. I think that's probably the best case scenario for for an animal-human chimera. If you're making them for any other purpose... You fucked up. It's going to be scarier than yeah. than, than the uh, creepy organ thing. Mm -hmm. So there it is. Human-monkey chimeras. Okay, well, I'm probably going to need one of their hearts one day. Well, let's not bank on that, okay? That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts because we'll be forever grateful. Yep. Special thanks to our tier three and four patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, and Robin McCabe. See you next Thursday. We love you all very much. Show created by Sean McCabe and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle online at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. This has been a production of Longboy Media. <laughs> You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.